Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. The voting rights bills have failed in the Senate. They will not pass. What will happen next in Congress? And how is the voting rights movement responding? Our guest is voting rights campaigner, Barbara Arnwine and the interrelationship between farming practices and the environment. What must change? What are black, indigenous, and people of color farmers doing about all of this? We speak with Ohio-based Susan Jennings with the Agraria Center for Regenerative Practice and an LA-based middle school. Parents and staff are protesting and Los Angeles Unified School District decision to move them from their campus. What's going on? The impacted campus is right, gifted, and talented magnet program. We speak with a parent from that school, Daryl Holmes. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Ukraine's president and defense minister are seeking to reassure nervous citizens that an invasion from neighboring Russia is not imminent. Their comments came even as they also said the threat is real and they're preparing to accept a shipment of U.S. military equipment. NATO said it is bolstering its deterrence in the Baltic Sea region, and the U.S. has ordered 8,500 troops on higher alert. More from Jonah Chester. As the situation along the Russian-Ukraine border continues to deteriorate, Defense Department spokesperson John Kirby says the Pentagon has placed 8,500 troops on heightened alert in advance of potential Russian military actions, should NATO request them. Even as we continue to prioritize diplomacy and dialogue, we must also increase readiness. President Joe Biden ordered family members of U.S. embassy officials to leave Ukraine, but the embassy itself will remain open. Talks between Western allies and Russia have failed to cool tensions in the region, where Russia has been amassing troops along its border for several months. Kirby emphasized the move is a precautionary measure and not an official deployment. Again, I want to reinforce that as of now, the decision has been made to put these units on higher alert and higher alert only. No decisions have been made to deploy any forces from the United States at this time. I'm Jonah Chester for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Russian spokesman Dmitry Peskov accused the West of hysteria and putting out information laced with lies. We are seeing statements from the North Atlantic Alliance about more troops pulling forces and assets into the eastern flank. All of it is causing tensions to rise. I'd like to point out, it is not because of what we, Russia, are doing. It's all happening because of what NATO, the United States, are doing and the information they are spreading. Peskov said Russia would speak with French President Emmanuel Macron this week. Russia is also awaiting a U.S. response to the security demands it has made. A key demand is that NATO not admit Ukraine into the military alliance. Racial justice groups say the U.S. Supreme Court should not have agreed to hear two cases that challenge the use of race as a factor in university and college admissions. Civil rights groups fear the court will use the cases to overturn decades of previous rulings that have allowed limited consideration of race in admissions. The two cases challenge admission procedures at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, which is a state school. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund said the court's decision comes amid the backdrop of widespread efforts to erase and deny the experiences of people of color. The group added that as the country experiences a resurgence of white supremacy, it is as important now as ever before that future leaders be educated in a learning environment that exposes them to the rich diversity the country has to offer so they may be fully prepared for the many challenges ahead. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law said that race Conscious admissions policies are a critical tool that they ensure students of color are not overlooked in a process that does not typically value their determination, accomplishments, and immense talents. 
Georgia judges have approved a request for a special grand jury by the Georgia prosecutor who's investigating whether former President Donald Trump and others broke the law by trying to pressure Georgia officials to throw out Joe Biden's presidential victory in the state. The court order says the special grand jury is to be seated May 2nd for a period of up to a year. The Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis needs the grand jury to issue subpoenas to potential witnesses who have refused to testify voluntarily. Among them, Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Then President Trump pressured Raffensperger during an hour-long phone call to find him enough votes to overturn Biden's win in Georgia. That call took place on January 2nd of last year, just four days before the violent Capitol insurrection by Trump's supporters. The World Health Organization's director general says the acute phase of the coronavirus pandemic could still end this year if some key targets are met. But Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said it's not a given. There are different scenarios for how the pandemic could play out and how the acute phase could end. But it's dangerous to assume that Omicron will be the last variant or that we are in the end game. On the contrary, globally, the conditions are ideal for more variants to emerge. Dr. Tedros said the world can end COVID-19 as a global health emergency this year, but that will require reaching goals like the WHO target to vaccinate 70 percent of the population of each country by the middle of this year, with a focus on people who are at the highest risk of COVID-19. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Likely you have heard about the challenges facing the right to vote across the United States that will negatively impact eventually all of us, but beginning with people of color, black people, indigenous people, Latinx people. Now, the voting rights bills that were in the Senate have failed. They were blocked by all Republicans and two Democrats. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen now? Is there any way of protecting voting rights? This as voter suppression laws continue to spread like a wildfire across the United States. To add insult to injury, here is what Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had to say. Let's go to that clip now. What's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. A recent survey, uh, 94% of Americans thought it was easy to vote. This is not a problem. Turnout is up, biggest turnout since 1900. It's it's simply they're being sold a, a bill of goods to support a democratic effort to federalize elections. As Senator Blunt pointed out, this goes back 20 years. The excuses change from time to time, but this is been a Democratic Party goal for decades. Here, there's a distinction between Americans and black people who live in the United States. I would like to welcome back our guest, Barbara Arnwine, veteran civil rights and human rights leader and advocate. She's currently the president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition. She has been in the trenches working on these issues on voting rights for decades. Barbara Arnwine, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yes, I am an American, even though I am black. (laughs) (laughs) You know, right, he let the real story spill, didn't he, Barbara? (laughs) With that kind of comment. So, Barbara, given the fact that it seems as though nothing in terms of at least the two pieces of legislation that had passed the House that were in the Senate and has failed in the Senate, so they're no longer viable. What is being proposed now? First of all, tell us what members of Congress, there's some bipartisan group that's making a proposal having to do with protecting voting rights. And then there's a response from the movement. Barbara Arnwine, let's start with what they're proposing in Congress. There are several different proposals. There's, you know, the group that is working on the Electoral Count Act 
talking about adding, you know, some provisions from the Freedom to Vote, John R. Lewis Act, those. There are people talking about moving independent, very slimmed-down version of the Freedom to Vote Act. There have been, you know, discussions about, you know, some people wanting to just move a very limited version of the John R. Lewis a Voting Rights Advancement Act to return to that stage. There are people, you know, arguing that there needs to be another vote. There are all kinds of actions going on in the Senate and Congress to try to respond to this disastrous failure of the Senate to live up to its obligation to protect voting rights and to protect our democracy. I have heard so many different proposals, seeing so many different approaches, but I think that ultimately we will win this battle over this legislation when we get the proper Senate. I think that a lot of people's attention is turning to the organizing that's got to be done in the state at the local level to make sure that there's a better Congress in 2023, that that's where a lot of focus is going to right now. The thing about it is, what good would another vote do on these bills that have already failed? What is what is the response, the voting rights movement that you have been <laughs> a stalwart on for decades now? And I know that your organization Organization, the Transformative Justice Coalition, hosted a discussion about what the next steps are. I mean, how do people see this playing out? Well, interesting. Most people would be surprised that a lot of the activists are not sitting around holding their heads and their hands crying, that a lot of people are actually energized by this inaction and failure in the Senate, that people are actually saying it's time for us to step up, that we got work to do. And that work is to make sure that we protect every vote throughout this country. People don't know, you know, because they believe this is all political, that they're not aware that we have, you know, lawlessness going on in Georgia, that the people in Lincoln County were able to obtain thousands and thousands of signatures on petitions calling for that county to not cut six of their seven polling places. So they would only have one instead of seven, and that the head of that board has said he doesn't care, even if it's the law, that he's going to do what he wants to do. This is just lawlessness. I mean, he's defiantly saying that he doesn't care what the law says. We have, you know, people introducing, think about this, everybody, they're introducing legislation in Arizona and in Tennessee requiring that if you vote in person, in person, if you come to the polls, that you got to put your fingerprint on your ballot and that you got to be fingerprinted in order to vote. I mean, this is just, you know, ridiculous. They're taking it to, you know, almost a criminal process. I mean, next they'll be asking for mug shots. I mean, this is insane. They're talking about having, you know, holograms and other kinds of processes to track everybody's ballots, which means that they're tracking how people are voting, which means that they're going to, you know, have the capacity to mistreat, you know, voters based on who they are selecting in their voting. I mean, there's so many things wrong. With this democracy, we got people, they're rejecting in some counties in Texas, they're rejecting more than 20% and higher of people's uh, applications for mail-in ballots. And I understand why. I mean, I actually tweeted about this and showed people what the requirements are for completing your absentee ballot. It is a maze. It's a labyrinth. It's over 20 requirements that you got to know and you got to understand. And it's uh, very difficult. And remember that in Texas, they even made it where you got to be 65 years and older to even request an absentee ballot. And then they come up with these really complicated, convoluted, insane uh, rules that most elderly people can't understand. And I don't blame them. I read it and I was just shocked at how convoluted it was. So I, you know, tweeted it out and told the public, look at this, and there, you know, I'm getting thousands and thousands of responses of people saying, oh, my goodness. But that's what we're up against. I mean, this is not some fictional battle. This is real battles that will hurt voters. 
I mean, imagine if you live 50 miles away from your nearest polling place, which is going to be the reality for voters in Lincoln County if they you know, continue this lawless streak. All these problems going on around the country, many examples, especially in the state of Georgia, where they're now also trying to ban drop boxes. No drop boxes at all. That's how hostile they are to people's rights to express themselves and to elect vote their candidates of their choice. And we're also seeing a real vicious assault on election boards where they're not only being taken over by, you know, state governments so that the state legislature can run and count the votes, but they're also kicking off black members. They're kicking them off the election boards, banning their participation. I mean, in light of what the Senate has failed to do, the answer to that assault is that we have to get on the ground and protect these voters. We got to be in the courts. We got to be in the churches. We got to be on the streets. We got to educate voters. Reach out by phone banking. There's so much that if you're sitting up here listening right now and you say, I hate this assault, on our democracy, there's a lot you can do. We need you. We need you active in this battle because there's so much that we have to do to protect voters. And ultimately, the voters will turn out and they will make sure that we stop uh, this assault on our democracy. I can't help but think of what happened in Europe with the rise of fascism there. And oh, there yeah. were people who lived in the Netherlands, who lived even in Germany itself and other parts of it saying, oh, it can't be that bad, right? Uh, they just didn't believe or didn't really want to pay attention to what was happening right in front of their faces. And, you know, when you look at the, the threat to voting rights here, when you look at the fact that there were, and you could tell me if, if this is correct, 389 bills with restrictive provisions in 48 states. That was a figure from the Brennan Center for Justice. 22 bills with restrictive provisions that had already been enacted, and who knows, when we did this research, maybe more have been added to that. At least 61 bills with restrictive provisions in 18 states moving through legislatures. You know, and you have the GOP doing the long game of really working on the state level to make sure at the legislative level that they are in charge of as many legislatures as possible. And you talked about fingerprinting and all that sort of thing. And in Florida, DeSantis is talking about having a, a kind of a quasi-military force, you know, to patrol. I, I don't know what he's talking about patrolling. And, you know, it does seem as though the threat in particular to black people who are more highly criminalized than any other population in the United States, the threat of criminalizing black people for just even trying to vote. So the thing is, is I'm wondering about the response on the street and whether the general public, starting with those who are going to be most impacted, realize the threat that is actually there and wondering if the response from the general public how you feel about it, if you think it has been sufficient. I know that on ML King Day, there were members of the King family, etc. There was a march on Washington. We know that the anniversary of the famous march on Washington, there was a, a march that happened there with uh, Action Network. We know the Poor People's Campaign has been on it. We know that young people, as well as uh, journalists, has gone on a hunger strike. You, Barbara, I don't know how many times you've been arrested, but um, what do you think in terms of just the masses of people. I mean, when we saw what happened with George Floyd and that movement that really grew up and spread all around, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And some people are saying, well, we're not seeing, we see the dedication of people like yourselves and civil rights activists. But in terms of the movement, the broader movement, people are, you know, worrying that they're not seeing enough of that in response to this attack on voting rights. Barbara, your thoughts. First of all, people, if you are not seeing it, you need to be following groups like ours, like uh, you know the Transformative Justice Coalition at tjcoalition.org. You need to be following us because we are active. Uh, you know the beauty of all of this. Uh, during our town hall last night, we had Black Voters Matters on. We had several different amazing organizations on 
uh, that, you know, like the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, every one of those groups said that they're doubling down on their efforts to protect the vote, not, you know, retreating, not being uh, scared, not being intimidated, not, you know, giving in to this harassment, that they are doubling down. And what I loved is the thousands of people who joined up who made it very clear that they are upset and want to be part of this national movement to protect the vote. In fact, what I've seen is energy, Margaret. I've seen the exact opposite. I've seen a lot of people who have sat by the sidelines now saying, i got to get into this battle. I can't just sit around and uh, think that others are going to take care of it or that the Senate's going to do the right thing, that i got to be on the streets, i got to be involved in calling voters, educating voters, and mobilizing and protecting voters. So I think we've actually seen two things happen as a result of the Senate vote. One has been a lot of these evil voter suppressors have been emboldened, and they're getting worse, and they're coming up with worse proposals now that they think there will be no federal intervention. And then on the other side, we're seeing people who believe in democracy, who care about voting rights, instead of going to bed and being depressed, they are saying, we got to organize. We have to do this battle. And groups like mine, we're going to be in the states. Uh, we're going to be working with our partners around the country, and we're going to be mobilizing troops, <laughs> I guess is one way to say it, but lots of cadres of people to do everything from phone banking, postcard writing, meeting, organizing, canvassing, all the work that has to be done to register and to contact and keep you know, voters engaged and to mobilize and turn out the vote. I mean, we are serious about this. And we're also talking real hard about the Senate and about making sure that the good senators to pass, devoted to our democracy to pass voting rights legislation, that that has to be a priority for Congress people who will you know, also do this fight. So there's a lot of concentration, but we're also talking about the state and local level, that these state governments that are passing these adverse laws, that there's got to be efforts in these states to have better state legislators. So there's a lot that we got to do, people, and this is not the time to be talking about absence or to be talking about non-engagement. This is a time to heighten engagement, and I'm so glad that so many people see that and that we're actually seeing. My email has just been flooded with people wanting to help, wanting to be involved. The reasons we keep bringing you back to this to this show, and and also just to say that just on Monday, Reuters is reporting that the U.S. court rejected Alabama's redistricting plans as violating oh. uh, black voting rights. So you know those battles are happening uh, all over the place. And and Barbara, just finally, I know you you got to dash, we got to move on. But for a lot of our listeners out there who say, well, we're revolutionaries, we're progressives, and we we don't believe in voting. So, you know, why should we pay attention to this? They better realize that if they're not out there voting, and that's not to say the, oh, that that's the only thing one has to do, that you're really giving it over uh, to these white supremacists who basically have taken over the Republican Party. Just a, a final thought to, to people who are on the left, uh, who are perhaps rightly skeptical about the political class, but who also need to take some responsibility. Barbara, uh, just a so, final thought. Yes, on Monday I will be in Brunswick, uh, Georgia, for the hate crimes trial element of the Ahmad Arbery case. And I just want people to know that if you're running around wearing a T-shirt or saying Black Lives Matters on your Twitter or whatever, and you're not involved in the voting fight, then you're betraying your own cause. Because the reality is every state prosecutor is elected. Every local prosecutor is elected. When you are looking at this whole issue of judges, most judges are elected. When you're looking at this whole issue of sheriffs, sheriffs are elected. Who appoints the 
chief of police. That's done by your mayor. I mean, if you're not the clerk of court, all of these positions are elected positions. And if you're not taking every step you can to make sure that those positions, that if you're voting just for that purpose, then I'm fine with you. But you need the vote. Because otherwise, you're letting the Jackie Johnsons of the world, that is the former DA uh, in Brunswick, uh, in Glen County, who told the murderers of Ahmaud Arbery to go home and, that, and told the police not to arrest them. Uh, and, uh, you know, and as a consequence, uh, they did a you know, very shoddy two-day investigation for most parts and did not pursue these murderers and put out false uh, narratives and everything else because she was corrupt. And now she's under indictment. But the people of that city, the people of, I'm sorry, of that county turned her out of office. They, they came together, and for the first time in the history of that county, they voted out an incumbent DA for being, uh, you know, so corrupt. So that was people power. And that's why, you know, the people of Brunswick and the people inside of Glen County and all the townships now know that they can, you know, insist that their district attorney do better. The police chief had to leave. Uh, they had to, you know, really make changes because of that corruption that had been in that police force. So I just think that, you know, people got to understand that sitting back and saying, well, you know, uh, that's not uh, revolutionary enough, that doesn't overturn everything, please. Uh, you know, I want you to really talk to the Arbery family and find out what it meant that they were able to uh, get these people actually charged and convicted, and now they've been sentenced. And now we're look going to the hate crimes element because people need to know what the hate was that was operating there. So none of that would be happening but for political involvement. And talk to the Arbery family where they'll tell you that they had a history of not voting. But when this happened to their son, to their nephew, to their beloved cousin, they took over becoming voting rights advocates because they saw what their non-involvement had resulted in, this kind of corruption. So people, you know, we need to be in the streets. The same thing is true of governors, DeSantis, some people call them DeSatan, but anyway, down in Florida, just, you know, killing people by demanding that kids go to school and catch COVID and bring it home, all the things forbidding the schools from having mass mandates in Virginia. All of these things matter of all races. I mean, I think people just got to understand that this battle to hold, uh, to not only elect people, but to hold them accountable is absolutely critical to any form of democracy. And you and I know that around the world, there are these authoritarian forces, these fascist forces that hate democracy, and they're doing everything they can to undermine it. And the United States is just caught up in this global push, but also we're caught up in our white supremacist, white domination, as I call it, syndrome, where we just don't want to have power sharing. But the reality is, is that a multiracial democracy is demanded in this time, and it only can happen if every one is engaged. Everyone is involved, not sitting on the sidelines. Get into the streets, as my co-leader, Daryl Jones, keeps saying. Become part of this army of pro-democracy forces. Let's get this done. It's our time. Fannie Lou, Hamer, and so many others are looking upon us to do this work. And they can count on me and Margaret. You know they can count on so many others, like Latasha Brown and others. We will be out there. We're going to do this work. Okay. Well, on that on that call, Barbara Arnwine said very well. Thank you so very much for joining us. And people got to decide, what are they going to do? They're going to sit on their hands as the, the, this country moves towards authoritarianism, some say fascism, or they going to do something about it. Barbara Arnwine, we'll have you back. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you so much for having me. All righty. We're going to take a short station break, and then we'll be focusing on another crisis that's facing the nation and indeed the entire world, having to do with the climate crisis that we are living in and the interrelationship between industrial farming practices and the climate crisis and a movement that's trying to do something about it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Rabbi Sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Songs of Freedom, the late, great Bob Marley. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you miss any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety, and you can subscribe for a free podcast. And check out our Facebook page if you're a member. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott, our website at www.sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And today in the United States, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Bellevue, Washington and Bellevue, Washington. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Australia. We are now going to turn our attention to something that all of us have to be concerned about. And that has to do with the climate crisis that we are facing and regenerative farming, which are the farming practices that create a cycle of caring for the soil through responsible grazing and land management. Primary goal, we're told, of regenerative agriculture is to enhance and retain the biodiversity in the soil, which has been continuously stripped through industrial farming. Before we welcome our guests and say a bit more about that, let's go to a clip now about regenerative farming. In many parts of the world, land is being overworked and misused, and it's increasingly being swallowed up by the effects of global warming. Heat waves and droughts are turning one's fertile lands into deserts. That's the latest warning from scientists. I think the takeaway message is that the way we use land matters because it impacts the climate and that we also should use land as a solution. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says global warming and poor land use practices are having devastating effects. Entire communities have lost their crops, livestock, land, and livelihood. Small-scale farmers who depend on rain to grow their crops are left guessing about whether the rains are going to come, whether there'll be enough, um, so it's, it's really an urgent message to governments. The report calls on governments to promote small-scale farming and to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It also urges consumers to do their part by reducing meat consumption. The way we produce food and what we eat contributes to the loss of natural ecosystems and declining biodiversity. It's estimated that one-third of the food produced for human consumption, about 1.3 billion tons, goes to waste every year. The UN panel says limiting the amount of waste would free land for reforestation and crop growth. A warning to stop pushing land to its breaking point and a call for governments to pay attention. Katia lopez Odoyan, Al Jazeera. Clip from Al Jazeera, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And regenerative farming has the potential to slow down and many say play a critical, if not central, role in reversing climate change. Uh, But it takes a whole movement for that to happen, not only in the United States, but around the world. So I'd like to welcome our guest now to discuss all of this with us, uh, Susan Jennings. She is based in Ohio. She is with the Agraria Center for Regenerative Practice. It was formerly Community Solutions and served as Community Solutions Executive Director in 2014. She, in 2017, she led the 75-year-old organization uh, in its auction to purchase 128 acres of conventional farmland on the outskirts of Yellow Springs, Ohio. And in the past five years, 
years, Agraria has developed regenerative practices that not only are building the soil at the farm, but also rebuilding community in Southwest Ohio through programs such as the Regenerative Farming Fellows Program, the Big Map Out Curricula for Children, and conferences and media focusing on community resilience. She was a founding member of the Black Farming Conference Committee, which held its first event in 2020, a conference that led to the development of what people call BPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color Farmers Network, and several other resources for local and regional under-resourced farmers. So, Susan, we're really happy that you're able to join us. Thank you so much for having me, Margaret. I'm really delighted to be in conversation with you. Right. So, for people People, uh, Susan, who are just learning about regenerative farming and in particular the working on the soil, regenerating the soil. Tell us a bit about what that is about. Margaret, I have to say it's really a very exciting conversation because I think the response of many people to climate change is feeling powerless. And the exciting thing about regenerating soil, as you said in your introduction and that wonderful clip, it actually has the power to not only contribute to carbon drawdown, but then also potentially reverse global warming through sequestering carbon and then also caring for the water cycles. So a lot of this is really based on Indigenous practices, composting, integrating livestock, basically the way that we've been doing farming in the last 60 years, last 80 years, and really since the beginning of the agricultural revolution, quote unquote, is really degrading soil. And a lot of our migration issues have to do with people who can no longer farm in their own countries. So it really is a challenge uh, for us, the results of industrial agriculture. But as I say, it's very exciting because of recent studies and understanding of how rebuilding soil is almost a, a miraculous way to uh, dry down carbon and also create uh, healthier food and healthier people. Susan, are these practices new? I mean, you mentioned indigenous no, practices no, no. of indigenous people <laughs> and uh, just uh, clear that up for us, Susan Jennings. Sure, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you for asking that. And we actually, at our last Black Farm Farming Conference, we had an amazing presentation by Leah Pennyman from Soul Fire Farm, who really, I think, spoke most clearly about how a lot of regenerative farming is based on indigenous practices, including composting and multi-leaving leaving roots in the soil all year round and not focusing on monocultures. And then also way beyond that is this feeling that we are part of the land and the land is part of us, that we're not separate from nature. And that piece is often missed when you're just looking at land care as a scientific practice. Part of nature, we're not separate from us and, and we really have to move back to that. So then yeah. we know that among, um, well, we know what has happened to indigenous people and the theft of their lands. And uh, on this show, we've also talked with some of the black farmers in terms of the challenges that they have faced over so many years, black landowners in the U.S. South having lost 12 million acres of, of farmlands, mostly from the 1950s up and now the whole battle of uh, funding that the of the Biden administration that was supposed to go uh, to black farmers um, who have been historically discriminated against and now is being challenged and, and held up in, in court. So you all are involved in helping uh, to ensure this upcoming conference of um, uh, BPOC Farming Conference, the Black Indigenous People of Color Farming Conference conference in 2022. Tell us about that, when it is, how people could get involved, and why a conference like this is so important. Susan Jennings. Okay, um, thanks for that question. I would like to say, actually, that a lot of money has been going. Um, the NRCS is making historic contributions, including to Soul Fire Farm, Detroit Farming Network, the uh, Federation for Southern Cooperatives. So although there are some issues, or, you know, it's now in court in terms of actual reparations to farmers. There's an awful lot of um, work that is being done by the NRCS, so I, I wouldn't want to miss saying that. And the conference that we are hosting on September 9th and 10th, which will be online and then also have some face-to-face -face component, is going to be focused on roots, uh, food, and storytelling, because we're 
thinking of storytelling as really an important way for people to re-engage with their own um, history and commitment to land care. And again, this, this idea that we are part of nature. Um, and I have to say for me, we, this was, this is going to be our third black farming conference. What's been most, well, I'll say there's three very exciting things that have transpired from those conferences. And I hope is repeated in this upcoming conference. One is that we've historians start each of our conferences to just kind of center ourselves in, as you say, the loss of black farmland, but then also the promise of black cooperatives, black ownership. You met the previous speaker mentioned Annie Lou Hamer, who of course was an important pioneer in cooperatives and farming cooperatives. So all that history, I think, is really important to remind us so we're not thinking that we're starting from scratch. There's actually a lot of work and a lot of inspiration that we can draw on. Um, the second is how much is happening now. There's just, as your speaker last week said, RE Indigenous people, we're not talking about a past civilization. We're talking about people who are living in 2022. And in 2022, there's a lot of exciting movement going on in black farming, A lot again, black cooperatives, thinking about marketing, ways that farmers can work together to market. So that's also very exciting. And I think the third thing is this recognition, and this kind of goes back to regenerative farming being indigenous practices. I think the most inspiring thing is, as in many, many other ways, we're recognizing that the history of black and brown people and indigenous people actually gives us really powerful ways to move forward as a culture. So it's not about black farmers becoming like white farmers or, you know, really trying to think about regenerating a sense of um, what black farming should be about, but really about recognizing all the power that is already part of the culture in terms of community sharing, the faith-based nature of food, food and land being part of a cultural heritage. So that, to me, is, I guess, the most exciting piece. That's uh, fantastic. And and also, we are, are going to have to wrap up in a minute. But one thing, I do want you to let people know how, if they want to get involved with your organization to find out a bit more about it, what they could do, and also to, to participate or, or get involved with this conference. But first, just quickly tell us about uh, soil, because a lot of people, we walk on it, you know, people say it's just dirt, but they're vital soil organisms. The Guardian had a, a, a great article about the harm that pesticides do. So all y'all out there spraying yeah. Roundup and all of this, please listen up. Yeah. This is our life's blood in so many ways, um, Susan. Yes, it really is. Absolutely. Well, I mean, soil health is intimately connected to human health and biodiversity in the soil leads to biodiversity in our own gut biota. So really, soil is is or should be the most biodiverse area on the planet. And there are more organisms in one teaspoon of soil than there are people on the planet. So it's like hugely, healthy soil is hugely active. And what happens when you introduce pesticides or even chemical fertilizers is you interrupt the kind of dance that goes on in the soil between roots of plants and the soil itself. So the rebuilding soil is not only vital for um, carbon drawdown, but is really intimately connected to human health. And you've probably heard the stats about how much less nutrients we're getting, fewer nutrients we're getting in our bodies now than, than say, 100 years ago. And, and most of that has to do with soil being degraded. Absolutely. Um, so important. And actually, I was reading also that in the U.S., they really don't test the impact of soil organisms when they're doing the environmental impact of pesticides. That's something we really have to watch. But for people who Agreed. want to find out more about your work, about the work of Agrarian Organization, but also the upcoming conference, BPOC conference, what should they do, Susan Jennings? The email for the Black Farming Network, because we also have network activities in between conferences is bfn at communitysolution.org. And you can also go to our website, communitysolution.org. We'll try to post that information on, on the website. And we would love to do a follow-up once that conference happens and, and talk with some of the experts that will be presenting there. Yeah, so we'll be, we'll be back in touch with you. 
Thank you, Susan Jennings. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we are going to wrap our show up now with what seems like a disturbing story uh, coming out of the Los Angeles Unified School District, where you have some parents and some teachers that are really quite upset about the relocation of the uh, Wright uh, Middle School, which is a STEAM magnet and gifted school. So what I'd like to do to, is to welcome our guest to explain all of that to us. And he is a parent at the, the school impacted. I'd like to welcome Daryl Holmes. Daryl, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me very much. Daryl, you know, what's going on? I mean, this, this story quite struck me because my daughter, some of the listeners know, uh, she is the one of the few. In fact, she's the only black woman physicist in her field in the U.S. She she does axions and, you know, black holes and dark matter and all that sort of thing. And it was really a battle uh, for her staying in STEM and also being accountable to the community that produced her. So, Daryl, what is going on with your school? It seems to have been doing really terrific work. Basically, last week we found out that the district attended to move our campus from Wright Middle School's campus and combine it with Westchester High. And basically, it's not what we want, not what we're asking for, not what we're looking for. So they're basically taking our resource, our campus, and placing it somewhere else, combining it with two other schools. Right. And tell us the impact of that, because a lot of the, the students on the campus where they are now, I mean, they have, you know, painted the campus, they've built a lab, a robotics lab, recording art studio, etc. And, and none of that can go if you're moved to a Westchester campus. And a, a number of these are, are black and brown scholars. So what is your concern uh, or what is the opposition to moving the campus out of of the community from where it is now and a, a little bit of the history there. Daryl? Yeah, basically the concern is losing a resource that we've invested so much in. We, we've turned around, you know, the reputation of the school. We've invested into resources. We've invested into, you know, new labs on campus and moving us to another school is going to impact us drastically because we're going to lose everything we've been building, you know, and striving for, trying to build the reputation of right, trying to increase recruitment, just trying to do everything to make right the community school, the school where kids want to go for STEM, where kids want to go for gifted and talented, uh, you know, magnet curriculum. Yeah, and I, I know that my daughter for, I think since she was in first grade, was basically bust. She was at 32nd Street School in LAUSD and then went on to Laces. And, you know, we were living in inner, inner city, uh, East LA. So a lot of the students who are now attending um, right middle school, they are bust, aren't they? And uh, have there been some tensions with the local community where that school is based? And might those tensions somehow play in the fact that they want to now move this campus um, to uh, perhaps a predominantly uh, people of color uh, community? Just am I right about that? What, what's happening there, Daryl Holmes? Well, yeah, there's no secret that Wright is predominantly African-American and, and Latino. So it would drastically in, impact those demographics. So, and a lot of the students are bust. So it would, you know, these kids would lose the resource of the community going to a school that's been neglected. So it's kind of like we're taking a step backwards instead of trying to continue to move forward and progress on everything that we've invested in the right community and the right campus. So, yeah, it's it's not a good look at all. Yeah. And uh, finally, finally as well, and I also want to give a shout out to uh, Myla Ifakemi Jacks, who alerted me about this story. But for people who are listening uh, to this uh, uh, program now, and apparently LAUSD didn't really properly consult is the claim here in this decision. Is there anything that people could do to support your efforts, uh, Daryl Holmes? Yeah, I would say definitely get involved in the fight. We have a petition on change.org. We have their community meetings that are scheduled, one for today at 9 and one for Thursday at 5 p.m. So just have a voice. Support us in our request to be involved in these conversations and our fight for rights. So again, sign the petition, attend the meetings, have a voice, help us with our protest, be vocal, be visible, and, and just, you know, show help us build this stance and the reason why rights should stay and why we should continue to invest in our local school and right in our magnet program STEM 
and our magnet programs, the gifted ones. So um, if you have a voice, sign a petition, attend the meetings, let the board know the district know we're not going to just take this, you know, lying down. And, and I imagine um, you would want people to contact uh, members of the Los Angeles uh, School Board. So for the petition on change.org, should they just do a search under, like, right middle school petition, something like that, Daryl Holmes? Petition, the petition is titled Stop LAUSD Board of Education from Voting on the Motion to Move Right MS to WESM Campus. Um, it's a very long URL. I can I can state it, but um, I think it'd be best to just do a search for stop the LAUSD Board of Education from voting, and it will come up with that search. Okay, very good. And is there a deadline? How urgent is it for people to to do this? The urgency is there, so if anyone can, as quickly as possible, ASAP. We don't know when the board is voting, but or even bringing this to the you know the entire board. But the sooner, the better. The more signatures we can get, the more movement we can get, the more you know support we can get, the better for us and our attempt to keep right on it where it's at. Daryl Holmes, we certainly appreciate your um, your efforts. Um, and to let our listeners know, Daryl Holmes is a parent whose son is currently completing his first year at Wright uh, Middle School, enrolled in Wright's gifted and talented magnet program. All the best to your son. We're all very proud of him as a as the community, though we, we don't know him personally. But Daryl Holmes, all the best to you. And please, you and Myla, continue to keep us posted on this story. Thank you so very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Thank you. All righty. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're out of time. We got to wrap up today's show. Today's engineer, Gary Baca. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our brand new assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, who has been doing very, very well. There have been a lot of tech challenges, etc. And she is just uh, handling it with grace. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. You're going to stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you so very much for listening. And you all, please remember to stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. I know how to do my thing Don't talk to me This is a public service announcement. According to Los Angeles County's website, community transmission of COVID-19 has increased. The risk for COVID-19 exposure and infection will continue until more people are vaccinated. It's important for everyone to help slow the spread of the virus by wearing a mask. Everyone.